Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 136 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name has not changed. It is still the same. It is Dr. David C. as in curmudgeon Noe. Oh, man. And I am here. It's not your turn yet, Sorry. Jeff. Okay. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Shall I start over? I got you, C. Okay. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here on a somewhat blustery December evening mm-hmm. in the basement of the uh, RHB bookstore, which we call The Bunker Vomitorium South, with my good friend and uh, tremendous co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T., as in... Um, what do you got? What do you mm, got? Touchy. Touchy. Winkle. Wow, man. How are you doing tonight, Jeff? I, I'm doing okay. I'm more worried about you now. I mean, I, I when we came down into the bunker, I didn't right. know it was going to be this bad, but you're feeling right. curmudgeonly? I'm feeling kind of curmudgeonly. Okay. Well, when we got into the cage, you know, and pulled the door shut and yes. pushed the little button and descended three, yes. 4,000 feet. Right. Down, passing dead canary after dead canary. Exactly, and it's getting colder and that's colder. That's right. Yeah. I mean, who can endure that? That's that's true. That's okay. true. That's, that's always a big Cut me robber. some slack, right. man. So, well, I mean, to to, to counter your... Yes. Um, um, Varsity blues? Exactly. I'm not feeling all that touchy tonight. Okay. Yeah, so... I'm, You're never touchy. I'm, feel, I'm feeling good from a, a, a mental and um, and philosophical and spiritual standpoint. Yes. I'm still... I'm on uh. the, the tail end of, a, of an illness. Mm. Uh, maybe the listeners can hear that in my voice a right. little bit. But I'm, I'm hopefully. I can see it in your eyes. Can you see it? Yeah. Yes. I, but hopefully that's on its way out. So um, all, all things, mm-hmm. all things uh, considered, I'm doing all right. That's great. So the T stands for even keeled. Even what? Where's well, the, where's the T there? It's at the end of the <laughs> keel. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. All right. This is episode 136. Jeff, what are we talking about tonight? Dave, I'm excited about tonight. This is one of my favorite topics. I know he's. Yeah, Dave is rolling his <laughs> eyes at the other end of the table. But uh, we're talking about urban legends. Yes. We're talking about um, uh, kind of narrative archetypes and, of course, uh, a centering of my perhaps my all-time favorite topic, liminality. Liminality. Yes. So we're going to have an hour worth of liminality. Well, it's not going to be all liminality, okay. but there's going to be a heavy dollop of it. Okay. <laughs> I'm in for the dollop. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to talk about creatures and places which inspire... Um, a sense of unease. Yes, okay. exactly right. Uh, and I'm hoping we can we can talk about um, uh, any experience that you had with urban legends that yeah. you heard growing up. Nope, n- not a one. I lived in a rural environment. That's where, are there such things as rural legends? Yes, well, but most urban legends are rural. That's one really? of the weird ironies about huh. this. All right, but we, we, well, I'm we, eager to get into this. We can come. We can come back to that. Sort that, of. That topic. <laughs> I mean, I knew characters like. Um, the abdominal snowman. Yeah. Right. Who lives off in the Himalayas. <laughs> right. He's, he's always doing crunches. That's right. <laughs> or for those who are uh, eschatologically inclined, there's the already but not yeti. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, yeah. do you get the eschatology reference? You remember back at that institution where we used to study and yes, then teach? Yes, yes. They were always talking about, we live in the time. This is a theological point, so yes. bear with me, listeners not interested in theology. There's a good pun at the end, I think. Okay. They would say, we live in that time when the victory over the forces of evil has have uh, the victory has been gained, Yeah. but it's not complete yet. It's like the, the D-Day, they land at D-Day, the war's over, but there's mop-up. They call that the already, but, but not, not yet. yet. Gotcha. That's the... To my mind, cutesy catchphrase that has 
taken over the yeah. discussion of eschatology. So you were talking about the already but the not yeti. Already but not yeti. That's right. <laughs> so you're waiting for the monster to appear, but he's not there. He's not there yet. Right. Yeah, exactly. Are, right. are we going to be talking maybe about the 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 Bigfoot character? Um, you know, the one who invented those uh, transparent Swiss watches in the 1980s that no. were so popular? Oh, the the the, the sauce swatch? That's right. <laughs> you know about this, the sauce watch, I do don't know you? the sauce watch. Big hairy guys, but had those fashionable uh, watches with little rubber bands on them. Did you ever own one of those? I never did. Really? I never. I knew all the kids at school had them. I, I may have wanted one, but I never had a swatch. You, you suffered from swatch envy then. I, I did. Did you yeah. have a swatch? You just swatched others enjoying themselves. <laughs> All right, man. Yes, I did have one. You did have one. Oh, I man. got it at the thrift store. Nice. So I had the best of all possible worlds. Was this recently? No. <laughs> this is 25 years ago. Okay, all right. I was an undergrad. Yeah. I was briefly hip, and I didn't have to pay much for it. <laughs> that's that's perfect. So that's these kinds worlds. of these kinds of monsters, yeah. the Sasquatch yeah. and the... Um, Loch Ness Monster and so forth. Yeah. These are liminal characters, right? They are. They're not really the kind that I'm talking about what? tonight, though. So um, the the kind of my thesis is 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 kind of more centered around monsters that are associated with particular locations. I guess Loch Ness would be that. Yeah. Sasquatch is more kind of a moving monster. You can find the Yeti in many different places. But I'm talking about particular kind of creatures or 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 monsters that are associated with specific geographical spots. Mm-hmm. And 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 those those spots very often tend to be liminal. Like the Himalayan mountains? Well, that, again, that's too, th- it's too big. I'm talking about like a small town or that bridge on that side of town. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. Do you think the Loch Ness Monster would be as scary if the name associated with it weren't so impressive? You mean what, like, what, Nessie? No, no, the Loch Ness. Loch Ness? There's something evocative and misty and mysterious about that. Right, well, absolutely. If right. the monster were named, you know, something less interesting, like the... Turn left monster, right? Yeah, it, the, oh, much, much less foreboding. The signpost monster. Right. It wouldn't be really interesting. I always wanted to go to Loch Ness. I have wanted to too also. Right. I have been to Edinburgh, but that's, yes. that's my Scottish experience. Well, that's where the Firth of Forth is, remember? It, that's right. Right, right, right. Bodotrio. We talked about the Firth of Forth. We did. On some uh, previous episode. I can't remember yeah, which I, one. I did. But I imagine Loch Ness to be kind of a remote, kind of mis- misty, um, rainy, windy Scottish location. Yes, right? lots of bog, lots of peat. Lots of bog. We have some, actually, some uh, Scottish listeners. Oh, that's, uh, yes, we do. Yap Jacobs, remember right. Yap? Yeah, I do right. remember Yap. And we gave a shout out to him and to his, his wife and daughter, and um, they had some cogent criticisms of our Scottish accents. That's right, exactly. So we'll leave that off the table. It still stings. Yes. Uh, but I would love to hear if Yap's been up to Loch Ness. That's right. Yeah, so. so we have a shout out, don't we? We do. And this goes out to one, Sam Ayung. I remember Sam. I do too. Yep. Brilliant student. Yes, a really good student. And I, we, I think he was a student of us both. That's think, correct. Right. So Not he, at the same time. No. He said he uh, grew up in Colorado and began his mathematics studies at Calvin College. And after three years having experienced Dr. Winkle's classical mythology class, that's where I remember him from. Sam felt that his education would be greatly enriched by philosophy and classics, so he enrolled in Dr. Noe's Intro Latin and Homeric Greek class. Those are two separate classes. Yes. The Intro Latin and then the Homeric Greek. It wasn't a combo deal. No, it was no. not. <laughs> right. No one supersized. Right. Pick it up there, Dave. He says, uh, Sam says, uh, I was astonished and happily fell in love with the spoken Latin and the metrical recitation of the Iliad. Now, I got to teach Sam and one other student, uh, a young woman named... Um, Nell. I got to teach. Uh, I remember Nell. Of course you remember Nell. Yep. She went to uh, Italy with us. That's right. Yep. 
And uh, those two were just a fantastic Greek class. I got to teach Homer to two really fine students. That oh. was a lot of fun. I could, I could imagine both of them doing really well. Oh, yeah. Yep. Sam left uh, the institution with math, philosophy, and Greek majors, and then entered a math doctorate program where he studied geometry and topology. Hmm. You study any topology? I never, aside from like the toppings that I would put right. on my so ice cream. More right. of a, a middle or bottomology. Right, right. <laughs> Both words with Greek origin. Good job, Sam. Sam is now a visiting assistant math professor at Trinity College. His days are mostly filled with teaching math. And he's very grateful for this podcast as a way to engage with history, culture, language, narrative, and much else. Ah, it's so good to hear from you. That's him. very kind. Thank very you, cool. Sam. Excellent. Thanks for listening. So, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, as we get into this, you have for us an opening quote, do you not? I do. And I chose this one for a number of reasons. Uh, one, I think it illustrates, um, uh, it gives kind of a, a sense of where we're going. Uh, but also it deals with a famous urban legend from Iowa City. Yes, it, my it, old stomping grounds. Yes, and mine as well to a lesser degree. What? So yes, I when I was in graduate school at Northwestern, I dated a lovely young woman who grew up in Iowa City and had occasion to go over and visit um, her family there on a number of occasions. I don't remember and that. I, 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 maybe I haven't, well, I don't know if we've talked about this. But Boy, I'm learning so much about yeah. you, Winkle. So I spent a lot of time in Iowa City. And, and in fact, I heard about this urban legend um, originally from my girlfriend at the time. Interesting. So, now, I was in Iowa City, but never heard of this You never heard legend. this one? No. Well, this comes from an article called Playing With Fear, Interpreting the Adolescent Legend Trip by one S. Elizabeth Bird. From a journal called Western Folklore from way back in 1994. Interesting. July 1994, Western Folklore. Are you a, a regular reader, a subscriber of Western Folklore? I am I am neither of those things. Okay. But every once in a while, I will kind of dip my toes into um, uh, an article uh, mm -hmm. from, from journals like this. Right. Yep. So um, this begins. In 1924, Teresa Feldevert died in Iowa City, Iowa. More than 60 years later, her grave is a site for beer bashes and Halloween pilgrimages, where adolescents meet to share stories, superstitions, and fears, and to act them out in games that try to tempt fate. The legend trip, as it has become known by folklorists, folk, folklorists sorry. That's a tough one. Yep, yeah, is a widespread phenomenon. Many communities have their haunted houses, spooky bridges, or other sites where adolescents drive on dark nights so they can terrify themselves and live to tell about it. As its name suggests, the legend trip centers around stories or legends shared among people who travel to a particular place. The legends surrounding it are often disseminated actually at the site, such as the legend of Iowa City's Black Angel, the grave of the Feldevert family. From an analysis of the text in the context of the Black, Le Black Angel legend, I aim to show how the site is used to play out the values, fears, and concerns of those who perpetuate the traditions, hmm. which is something I aim to do with um, my, the, the legend that I've chosen to focus upon. Right? Okay. So you had not for, heard for of, this evening. For this mean. evening, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have not heard of the, you did never heard of the Black Angel. No, no. Teresa Feldevert and the Black Angel. Right. When I was in Iowa City, Jeff. Yes. I was busy earning a advanced degree in classics. Oh, so you'd had, you had no time for such silliness. No, shenanigans, <laughs> parfaits on the uh, <clears throat> commons lawn, you know? Right. It, it was all parfaits and, and deep, deep dives into Lucan and Sallust and Plato and so forth. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, well, um, I went down to this graveyard. Okay. And, the Black Angel uh, the Black graveyard? Angel, yeah, so the, it's this, this large kind of foreboding um, sculpture on top of a grave. And I forget what the the geological makeup of it, but it's the the the, the stone or the metal has oxidized yes. um, over time, and so what was once bright white has now turned um, completely black. Oh, and it stands out in this field of you know otherwise you know gray and white marble stones. Right, and it's it's this weeping angel whose head is bowed and the one wing is covering it, and oh. it looms over uh, whoever kind of you know, stands near it. Hmm. And so you at a glance you can see okay. That's a bit unsettling. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
the, you know, what I learned is that uh, local high school students or junior high kids will go out there around midnight and they will um, dare each other to kind of hop the fence of the graveyard and they're supposed to go and they run around it three times and there's <laughs> various things that are supposed to happen if you, yeah. if you do it right and if you do it wrong. And so I've, I've always been fascinated. Did by you wait until midnight and go out and join the young sixth and seventh graders? I to... did not. I went there in the bright light of day, and it okay. was it was uh, it was odd enough in the bright light of day. Mm. So mm. yeah. So maybe this young uh, this person Teresa Feldevert, nineteen twenty four. Yeah. Maybe she died young. I, I I think that's actually part of it. That's often how these stories go. And that's why the angel, you know, had was his weeping. head down and was weeping. Right. Uh, taken too young. Taken too young. I think that mm. is actually part of the story. Right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, Dave. Yes. Um, let me say a little bit about kind of where I, the spark for kind of this fascination came from. Okay. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I'll say I've always been interested in these kinds of um, oddball urban legends. And I grew up with a number of them from um, Jenison Hudsonville, where I grew up um, just down the road from here. Which is just a little bit west of the sprawling metropolis of Grand Rapids. Yes, exactly. And um, you know, I was always interested in them, but never thought much about them, you know, after I you know, outgrew my adolescent fascination mm-hmm. with them. But um, a number of years ago, I moved to Holland, Michigan, after I finished my, uh, my degree at right. Northwestern. And um, I, I got married right. uh, 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 to Beck, and she was teaching at a local high school in Holland. And she came home, and she was talking about how all her students were talking about this urban legend of the the melon heads. The melon heads. And you ever heard of this one? Those are the delicious little candies that come in the box. Is that right? If only it was that delicious. Oh, right. the, those the, are the the lemon heads. Lemon heads. Yes, right. Ah, so we're talking about the melon heads. Transposing a consonant or two. Yes. I don't know the melon heads. Right. And and nor should are they you. like the smashing pumpkins. Oh, that would be a great name for a band. Yes. Right? But apparently, there it's this. Uh, the melon heads are kind of a family, a mutant family. Who, oh no! With kind of. Um, megalocephaloid, you know, wow. uh, large oversized heads right. that haunt the woods of, of Saugatuck, Holland area. Really? And so the kids were telling these stories about one of the things they would do at, in middle school was to go out there uh, late at night and go into the woods and tell these stories and freak each other out yeah. that this mutant family was going to come and devour them. Hmm. And what fascinated me about it was that you know, I grew up in Jenison, which is Maybe a half hour from Holland? Safe. Beyond the reach of the melon beyond heads. The, beyond the reach of the Because their heads are large, but yeah. their feet and other body parts are normal size, yes. so they don't travel. Uh, true, exactly. So, yes, physically safe. But what really struck me was that um, as a kid who was very interested in those kinds of things, I had never heard that legend hmm. before. And so, um, you know, I started to, to really think about how you know, these urban legends, they, they, they pop up in a particular geographical location. All the kids in that area know the story. But once you step just a little bit outside of that community, nobody knows the story. Hmm. This is in the age before internet, yes, though, right. and the Blair Witch Project. Yes, exactly. Right. So, I mean, it's a since the internet, it's it's a completely different game now. All bets are off. Right. And um, you know, for those people, for people like me who are interested in studying them, it's right. a great gift because now you can kind of find out any legend that's right. out there. You don't have to be a part of the community to learn its local liminal legends. Right. Right. Um, but perhaps you know, still part of the community to participate in these, mm-hmm. in these these kinds of things. So you never, growing up, you never did the dare of going. I was into, trying to think into the cemetery at midnight or anything like that. I was trying to think as you were asking me. Yeah. So uh, near where I grew up, Orleans Cemetery. Okay. Um, there was one little memorial, family memorial, called the Greenup Memorial. Uh-huh. It's still there. I doubt any Greenups are listening, but um, if they are, no offense, Greenup family. Yeah. Um, and it was a it was a stone. 
it was a stone building kind of uh-huh um, and there was no there was no group effort involved in this this was just my driving by riding my bicycle by okay so frequently from you know my parents home to that of a, a near relative and thinking why is that building like that and why are there bars on the window hmm because, of course, my imagination filled in all the gaps. There's dead people on the inside. Right. But why the bars why the on bars? the window? Are they trying to get out? Is someone trying to get in or is someone trying to get out? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably the closest that we would get to this notion of urban legend. Gotcha, gotcha. But I, I had... I had constant fears, you know, of uh-huh. living out in the in a rural setting where it's very dark at night and, you know, one's job. I'm speaking, just speaking about some young child that that young child's job may have been to take the trash out after <laughs> yeah. dark um and so you know those things right it's not an urban legend but i'm, I'm sure there was something out there that was after me sure i mean i think all those kind of fears are rooted in the in these stories are kind of rooted in that same kind right. of idea I, mean, I remember being at um at at, at summer camp and, and having to go leave the cabin to go down to the bathhouse in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. I was convinced, okay, this is it. I'm never coming back. That's right. right? That, was a, that was a death march, right? right. Someone's going to get my sleeping bag. That's okay. That's, yeah, exactly. So that paradox, that, that really kind of struck me as interesting is that. So these many American urban legends, one, most of the urban legends are not urban at all. Right. Uh, they have the sheen of being extremely local, quasi-historical, um, and then also kind of seeming to kind of come up sui generis right out of the soil mm. with that. And so it, it's at, at a glance, it would seem, oh. Autochthonous. Autochthonous. Like the, these stories belong to this land, to this community, and you see these these original stories being born on the spot. So what are, if I may interrupt, what are the the typical salient features that would identify these legends as belonging to the same genus? Um, what, what's the list of items? Right. So, I mean, so that, that's what I'm kind of getting around to. And, I'm, and maybe our, our, our um, listeners are wondering, what does this have to do with the classics? Right. right. And so... Um, but they're, what, they're also wondering, when can I get back to Racco? <laughs> well, aren't we all wondering yes. that? I'm wondering that right now. <laughs> or Rummy Cube. Right. Um, so, I mean, so when I started kind of thinking about this, is, and you know, with the power of the internet, you can come, you can set these, these legends side by side. Interesting. And... What struck me is that what these things that on the surface seem to be so original, so unique, and so localized actually share all kinds of things in common. Okay. And they really seem to be built on these very highly recognizable narrative archetypes. And um, I, I kind of reduce it to kind of three main things is that there's usually some liminal time involved. Usually that's midnight. You, you need to define what liminality is in case someone hasn't listened right. to all the previous episodes. So liminality, a state of being permanently in between. In between uh, two important things. Yes. Right? And so, and as such, unbounded, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, uh, a liminal time would be something like midnight, because midnight is neither today nor tomorrow, but it's also both, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then also liminal spaces. Uh, what's striking is how many of these stories pop up around, up around bridges. Mm-hmm. So bridges are over a river, it's a crossroads. So mm-hmm. a bridge is both side in A and B, but it's neither. And it's also um, not quite land and it's not quite water. Exactly. Good. Right. Uh, crossroads themselves, that center part of the crossroads in cultures around the world is often associated with unbounded spirits in the restless dead in the practice of magic. And, mm-hmm. um, so that's that's very common. Um, grave sites and cemeteries. 
uh, by their nature as being kind of sites of transition between the living and the dead are, are also kind of spiritually liminal. Can we go back to the bridge for a minute? Please. Okay. So the Greeks had a particular word for this, you remember? Yes. Gephurismos. Right, exactly. Which Br- means bridginess. Bridginess. Right. It's the feeling you get when you're on the bridge. Yeah. Do you remember the feeling as a kid? Did your parents drive you over enormous bridges? And it was, um, it was exciting. Again, this was in the day before there were screens everywhere. Yeah. Specifically, multiple screens within the vehicle. And so being somewhat desperate for entertainment, mm-hmm. you know, my parents would say, we're about to drive over an enormous bridge. <laughs> this never happened to you? No, it absolutely has. And did you have the um, the ritual that you were supposed to lift your feet up we as had you to, went over the we bridge? Had, we, had to, we had to hold our breath. Yeah, yeah, well, bre- holding one's breath was for tunnels. Was it for tunnels? <laughs> which is another bridgey place. <laughs> yes, right, right. But um, our liminal place. But over bridges, we were supposed to raise our feet. Is that right? Not put them on the floor of the vehicle until we got to the other side. Okay. And now I wonder, what was the point of all this? Yeah. Was it just to entertain antsy kids? I think that's part of it, but I think it's it's probably um, um, it's one of these things that is a response. You call them my parents pagan? I'm not. I'm. They are inadvertent pagans. I mean, we think we do a lot of these 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 silly things that we and we don't realize why we do them. Yeah, it's another good band name. Ac- accidental pagans. <laughs> that is not bad at all. Thanks. Right. No, but uh, speaking of that, I remember, um, you know, one of the family trips we would often do was we would go to Chicago. Right. We go around the bend and we go over the Chicago si- Skyway. Right. And at one point, there's this very large bridge. Yes. That um, kind of takes you down to towards the Dan Ryan. I know exactly where you're talking and about. And I remember that being. A bit frightening. It's monumental. Kid, right? You kind of look over the side and it mm-hmm. plunges down. Into- Another great one is um, spanning the harbor down in uh, the Tampa Bay, uh, Clearwater. There's oh. a huge bridge down there. Okay. And if you're going to hold your you know, your feet up as you cross that, you better be in pretty good shape. Because- you, better, you better have been doing your crunches. Exactly. It's like a 10 <laughs> or 15 minute. But that was exciting. Yeah. And uh, bridginess, gefuris moss. Yes, exactly. Right. So the, the, the Greeks recognized that. And so... Um, where I'm going with this is that I'm going to walk through a particular legend that I find fascinating. Okay. And then interpret along the lines of kind of um, these classical archetypes. And I want to say, I'm not making the argument that these types of American legends, you can draw a straight line between them and the uh, and Greek myths. Okay. Um, I think you could draw several straight lines between these ideas and these kinds of archetypes that you find around the world. I think these are universal almost kind of Jungian. I was jo- going to say, you're going to go Jungian on us? Yes, now? Jungian or, or kind of Joseph Campbellian types of archetypes. Okay. So I'm not saying that this is uniquely Greek or classical. I'm just saying that I think we can use classical archetypes to better understand why these stories continue to pop up and why we continue to tell them and and, uh, and why we, we do weird things like lift our feet or hold our breath mm-hmm. in particular places. I think this all comes from the same um, you know, pot of soup. Okay. Yeah. So can you, can you, you know, give us a little bit of a hint a look at the answer what what is the reason you think um oh, l- let me i'll get there i'll get there i don't know if i have a clear answer okay. of, of that but um to get back to you were talking about you know what liminality so i'd say liminal times right uh, liminal spaces right and then very often these stories will involve liminal creatures which are kind of composite beasts neither fish nor fowl yes right and so they're made up of different kind of uh, parts or they're half human, half something. Sasquatch. Sasquatch. Half is man, half, half ape. ape mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Um, and, you know, so lots of the, the composite beasts from you know Greek mythology that you know the chimera, the sphinx, um, the minotaur. Uh, they all belong to this. And um, some would say that you know even things like um, the phoenix. Uh, the, 
Yeah, the phoenix. The, uh, the burning bird. Right, right. Or even the, to kind of uh, the kind of contemporary kind of more you know, horror lens, something like a ventriloquist doll, hmm. which is... You find those frightening? Well, I think... Um, I do kind of, but simply because they become kind of a horror movie trope mm. in that, you know, they are, they're there ostensibly for entertainment, but when you boil them down to their lim- their liminal qualities is that it, we're supposed to kind of believe this, this thing that's clearly not human that's talking, but has been imbued with these human qualities and that kind of puts it in that uncanny place. How come people don't feel that way about cartoons? Um... Because a cartoon is basically the same thing. It's a, it's a moving image. It's a moving picture. You know it's not human. Yeah. And yet it's a very persuasive facsimile of human society. I, w- I mean, I would argue... Aha! See, I just scored a philosophical point on your liminality. I don't think you did. I think that... Oh, come on! I, I think my answer would be that I think a cartoon is not is not like human enough to reach that uncanny valley. A doll, which has, you know, three dimensions, mm-hmm. is, is tangible... Um, is puts us more into that kind of that Freudian uncanny valley. Are you going to say some more things about uncanny valley? That's where they grow the delicious vegetables, right? That go into the um, the salad dressing. Oh yeah, exactly right. Oh the, sorry, the, that's the, Hidden Valley. Oh, that's Hidden Valley, the ranch, right? Oh, the <laughs> no, the um, one of Freud's theories, um, uh, which is called the uncanny valley, is about these very th- about these very things. Okay, and so you know, Freud would talk about how. Um, Sometimes p- people find to, in the presence of twins, that's okay. kind of that's that's they find that kind of unsettling, um, or seeing uh, like for a child to see a teacher at the store mm-hmm. is you know out of the you know out of the, the context in which you the only context that you tend to to experience that person can put you in the uncanny valley. But Freud would also talk about how things that are are meant to look human but are also clearly not human that kind of puts us uh, on that kind of that edge of of un uneasiness mm-hmm. and in all of that i think it was is um is is wrapped up in this kind of this, this notion of liminality okay right all right all right all right so um, so where are we headed next yeah all right so um we're going to talk about a specific legend that i came into contact with again only through the power of the internets because this is not a local michigan legend but it comes from um kind of the middle of nowhere virginia okay um and there's a number of reasons that i like this legend because i think it illustrates a lot of what we've been talking about but it also has kind of a unique uh, history to it, which I think also makes it very interesting. Um, so, so just to clarify, um, the, uh, the legends that uh, that we're talking about here are attached to specific locations. So, I think a lot of people when they think urban legends, they think of things like um, you know the mysterious hitchhiker. I don't know that you one. don't know that one. So, where the, somebody uh, you know picks up a, a hitchhiker along along the way and drops them off, and then they learn later that it was. Um, they recognized the, the photo in the paper of someone who had died like the week before oh. um, or like the campfire legend of, of, of the hook. Did you ever? No. Okay. Well, See, they, I, don't, I don't know anything, Jeff. Uh, why would it, why would a dead person need to hitchhike? I, I, maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's hard to get around as a dead person, <laughs> right? I don't know. Maybe they're so what's the to, legend of the hook? Is this a violent thing? Or? Um, I, without going into it, it's okay. a, it's a famous campfire legend where, um, you know, there's a, um, uh, a killer on the loose and he's got a hook for a hand mm. and then and and someone has a strange encounter and uh, that uh, they don't quite understand but they get home and they look on their, their door handle and as they drove away oh. the hook is hanging there oh, so, I see right so that was so it didn't involve a crocodile that swallowed a clock or anything no nothing like that okay. a different hook right All right. that was a legend that my dad loved to tell when we really? were camping yes hmm. right but so, this is this is going to be can I reveal the name yes please this is the Bunny Man Bridge. Yes, the legend of Bunny Man Bridge. Okay, uh, and the murderous Bunny Man. Should we um, insert here the laugh track? Maybe uh, that would that wouldn't be bad, right? Okay. Or or maybe some kind of some ominous, you know, okay. violin. We'll see what Mishka can do. It sounds good. 
one of the striking unique things about the legend of the bunny man is that we can actually pinpoint its origin okay so you know one usually one of the rules of an urban legend is that if you try to trace it back to where it came from you get lost in the fog and mm-hmm. so, so you know my cousin's friends roommates blah, 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 right you know, they swear it happened but you can never figure it out but this one we can carbon date we can right and so this um and this is there's a, a newspaper record of this of these events and it uh, it goes something like this and so we're uh, in on october 19th of 1970 oh that is very specific right so less than a month before i was born wow coincidence yep. yeah i don't think so right First the bunny man and then the Sasquatch is born. <laughs> right. So what happened is there was a, a young couple that was um, out on the roads and they uh, late at night, near midnight probably, mm. and they were parking alongside the road um, in Burke, Virginia, which is today is kind of part of the urban sprawl of DC. Okay. But this was still fairly rural uh, back in 1970. And as they were sitting in the car, a, a guy emerged from the woods uh, dressed head to toe in a bunny suit. Okay. And he had a hatchet in his hand. Oh, no. Yes. And uh, the couple froze because it was so bizarre. And the bunny man, the guy in the bunny suit, came up to the the passenger side window where the young lady was sitting and said something like, this is private property. You don't belong here. You need to get out of here. You need to get out of here now. Hmm. And before they could do anything or react, he threw the hatchet through the passenger side window. The glass shattered. Uh, miraculously, nobody was hurt. Hmm. And it landed at the foot of the young girl. And the guy ran off into the woods. The bunny man. The suit bunny guy. man suit guy ran off into the woods. Or was it a real bunny? No, it was a guy in a bunny suit. Okay, right. Um, who who said these words and threw the hatchet? What level of credulity do you want, or incredulity do you want me to have for this legend? Well, uh, I'll tell you what happened. So the next day, this young man and the woman they went to the police department to tell this story. Yes, and they actually gave them the hatchet. Hmm. And which is still the police then buried it. No, they actually they put it in a plaque and it's on their wall. Nice, right? Um, so you can find pictures on online of the hatchet of the bunny man on the wall of the police department still to this day in Virginia. That is odd, right? And so they they police looked into it, asked some questions, and the investigation really went nowhere. They couldn't find anything else until about ten days later. They didn't, if I may interrupt. Yes, they, they didn't draw have a you know a police artist sketch man in bunny suit and see if anything could be. Uh, drummed up if they did I, i'd never read anything about that okay. right? so i don't know how far uh, the, 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 like a composite sketch of the bunny man would have gone but 10 days later october 29th we're getting very close to halloween okay um in that same general area there was a um an apartment complex going up and there had been some vandalism from the local kids and so the, there was a security guard who was hired to walk through the site with a flashlight just to make sure no shenanigans were going on and on this particular Local night, kids and their shenanigans. Exactly, right. Um, and so he's walking along, this, the security guard, middle of the night, and in the beam of his flashlight on the porch of one of these unfinished apartment um, buildings, there stands a guy head to toe in a bunny suit, and this time he has an axe in his hand. And he stands there and he... he took it up a notch. He, and he yells at the security guard, same kind of thing. He says, this is private property. You don't belong here. You need to leave right now. Huh. And the, the security guard is frozen, by, again, by the oddity of the situation. And the bunny man turned around and ran off into the woods, never to be seen or heard from again. I thought he was going to appear again, but this time driving a tank or something. <laughs> right. You'd expect that to be the next uh, turn yes. of the wheel. Or a right. lance, you know, for jousting. Right. So, but he never shows up again. Huh. The story makes its way into the police blotter, into the local newspapers, and people are on the lookout for the guy in the bunny suit, but nobody's ever identified uh, with this. But there are these two separate... Uh, kind of confirmed experiences with the same guy who says the same thing. Presumably the same guy. 
Well, we, both, you could be the same guy, different guys saying the exact same thing. Okay, both with I agree. Bladed, wooded, handled. Fair. That's right. Fair. <laughs> right. So now what happens next is this is where it kind of becomes more amorphous. Okay. And so over time, like over the next decade, the story seems to kind of take on a life of its own and it moves. And it moves from the kind of the more suburban, urban area of Burke. Uh, and it moves inland to tiny Clifton, Virginia, which at the last census had a population of 282 people. That's uh, right. pretty small, or 281 right. and one bunny man. <laughs> right, right, right. And then the story uh, becomes something quite different. And and uh, as with urban legends, there's very ver- various versions of it. But the story goes um, here is um, that way back in the early 20th century, there was a mental mental institution in that general area, and they had to transfer a bunch of the mental patients from one um, institution to another. As they loaded them up on one of these, you know, very early um, you know, uh, sputtering trucks right. uh, from the 1910s or 1920s, and they're moving along. And somewhere in the area of Clifton, Virginia, uh, truck hits a bump, it tips over, and wouldn't you know it, all of the crazy mental patients escape and they scatter into the woods. Oh no! Right. And uh, over the next few days, with the help of the authorities, they round up all of them except that one that they never find. And lo and behold, um, in uh, uh, around the area of this train trestle bridge, now known as Bunny Man Bridge, which is really a tunnel, there's like a, a pedestrian tunnel which goes under a train trestle. Mm-hmm. So we have kind of a crossroads, but now it's train tracks and kind of a, a tunnel. Liminal spot. Uh, yes. Uh, they start finding the skinned um, carcasses of rabbits. And sometimes being hung by ropes. Now, this is getting really weird. It Jeff. is getting very weird. That's kind of the whole point of this, okay, right? Okay, I'm feeling a little liminal, frankly. Yes. And then uh, the st- people start having sightings of of this mental patient. What they quickly realize is was not actually, well, he was more than a mental patient. He was some kind of weird genetic experiment where he was this, turned this into half bunny, half this man. This part's made up. Well, this part, of course, is made okay. up, right? But it's it seems to have clearly Because my credulity is pretty high right now. Right. No, I I'm, need someone's hand to hold. I'm not asking you to believe the story. Okay. That's not the point, right? Um, and so since then, late 70s, 1980s, this train trestle tunnel and bridge has been known as Bunny Man Bridge. Mm. And it has become uh, a, a haunt for uh, the local kids to go out and kind of test their test their um, their courage. Their metal. Their metal. Mm-hmm. And to go down there into that tunnel um, at midnight and, and, and um, you know, stay as quiet as they can. Confront and, the bunny man. And listen for the soft footfalls of the bunny man. <laughs> who, uh, if, you're, if you are very unlucky, he will show up with his axe and he will come after you. Huh. Right. So... Um, You've been there, I assume. No, I haven't. No? No, I'm, I am dying to go to the bunny I man. Bet. Bridge, right? I bet. That just has you all over it. Exactly. I, I'm so, I, there's got to be some kind of humanities grant that would fund my <laughs> travel to Bunny Man Bridge. National there. Endowment for Liminality. Right. Um, exactly. So we have um, the liminal time yep. where, where you go out at midnight to test to do this. Right. You have the um, the liminal place, the, the bridge, the tunnel, um, the crossroads, and you have the liminal creature, the part bunny, part man. So you have all of those places, uh, those things in place for the the the, the perfect combination for an yeah. urban legend. Yes, it's funny that there was never any bunny as a chimera in antiquity. No, it's interesting that you've got birds, you have goats, you have snakes, snakes, you have lions, you have chickens, you have women. Um, they're all combined in men as a horse and and bull. Yeah, but never a bunny. Never a bunny. It seems to me that there aren't any rodents, are there? That are chimeric animals. No, I don't think there are. Maybe they were just considered cuddly even in antiquity? Yeah, I, b- po- quite possibly. I don't find them especially cuddly, but a lot no. of people do. Right. But I think that's one of the things that lends uh, um, 
horror to to the story. I think that's maybe more of a kind of a modern horror concept. Did you ever read any Stephen King? Nope. No, never. Never was that. Never your bag. Nope. Okay. Um, but one of the things that Stephen I King... I scare too easily, Jeff. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. I'd probably die if I read some true horror. Got you. Um, well, I mean, um, all right. But one of the things that, that King is famous for is that a lot of his horror is drawn from taking something that is on the face of it innocent. Yeah. And you tweak it just a little bit. Yeah. And it becomes awful. And so a bunny, which is should be cute and cuddly right. and, and fuzzy, and you, uh, you, uh, you twist it in a way, and now you've turned it into something quite the opposite. It's a bestia amoina. Um, yes. a, a creature that's just a little too nice. A little too nice. Some secret danger lurks within. Right, right. And speaking of a secret lurking danger. Oh, no. It's time for the ads. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by the great people at Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee, how long have they been around, Dave? Um, uh, a little more than a decade. A little more than de- a decade, right? Um, but uh, in, in that decade... They have produced these wonderful machines, the Ratio 6 and the Ratio 8, that are um, works of art, beautiful to look at. Um, They will outclass everything on your kitchen counter, and they just produce day after day the perfect cup of coffee. Dave, I I believe you have a a limerick that you've written? I do. Yes, I wrote a limerick for this occasion. All right. You were here as it was done. You witnessed it, right? Exactly. Okay, here it goes. These limericks are getting quite trite, as bland as a wall-painted white. But when Ratio makes coffee, all hats, they will doffy, for Ratio doth brew and pour right. Not bad. Not bad. For do, you co- like, do you like the doffy? Doffy. I like doffy. <laughs> I'm going to use that. But um, the, the, the fact that you cranked that out in about 30 seconds is, is, is quite impressive. Thanks. Did right. you notice how I slipped a doth in the fifth line? I missed the doth. For, for Ratio doth brew and pour right. Not bad. And the doth gives it a little bit of... No, grandeur. Loftiness. Yes, yeah. loftiness. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So let's yeah. say um, the listeners, just for the sake of argument, um, nominis gratia, they don't simply want to hear bad limericks. They also want to drink good coffee. Yeah. What might they do, Jeff? They might, or and I would encourage them to absolutely do so, is to go to ratiocoffee.com. That's R-A-T-I-O coffee.com, where they will find these wonderful machines along with all kinds of other um, coffee accoutrements. That's right. Right? Um, but... Um, I recommend uh, if you are if you are able if you are into coffee if if coffee is your thing mm-hmm. uh, more than just kind of a, a morning ritual but um, you want to invest in your coffee present and future mm-hmm. to consider getting one of these wonderful machines the right. six and the eight you and I both have um, the the eight yes you graduated from the six mm-hmm. uh, and that was a wonderful machine coming down um, down the pike I believe next year, early next year will be the, the ratio four yes coming across the bridge you might say it's in kind Excellent. of a liminal spot right now okay right we've seen some shots there's a prototype I've seen if you go to ratiocoffee.com slash f-o-u-r mm-hmm. uh, you can look at uh, you know some some images and videos of the prototype but it's not really finished yet it's going to be released sometime in early 2024 okay excellent I can't wait to to get the details on that and That's to, right. and to and offer that. I think we'll give one away for sure. Fantastic. Yeah. Yep. yep. I was trying to convince um, Mark maybe to, you know, do a special branding of the Ratio 4. Yeah. You know, uh, deface the beauty of the machine by putting some no brackish tang stickers on it or oh, something yeah. like that. How could, how could he say no? Maybe like the, what's the ad nauseum color? Kind of a, a vomity pink. A vomity pink, yes. Maybe make Orange-ish, one of, yes. yes. Right, right, right. Yes. Puce, one in that color. Oh, I, I can't imagine he wouldn't go for it. Right. <laughs> so listeners, do yourself a favor. Uh, check out uh, ratiocoffee.com today. And if you want one of these uh, uh, wonderful machines, use our coupon code, 
which um, this month is A-N-C-O-5-R. And the R stands for? What is it? Revolutionary. Excellent. Because it will revolutionize your coffee experience. Yes, it will. And it will also get you 15% off your order. That's right. Check it out. This episode is also brought to you by the great folks at Hackett Publishing. Now, Hackett has offices in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Cambridge, Massachusetts, but one need not drive through the... um, you know, the great American landscape littered with urban legends to these locations in order to get one uh, good books. No. You can use the internet. Yes, you can. You can go to hackettpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, check out their vast selection of classical translations and really works from all areas of human knowledge and interest or nearly so. It's true. East yep. Asian studies, modern philosophy, um, aesthetics. Islamic studies. Islamic studies, South American studies a really broad smorgasbord of things from which to choose. Yes, indeed. Yes. And if you have, um, if you made it through our Aeneid series, uh, we relied heavily on uh, Stanley Lombardo's translation mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of the Aeneid. Um, we've, we've used prose and poetry translations, and all of these are coming from, from, from Hackett. The Deborah uh, Roberts translation yes. of the Prometheus Bound. That's right. Which is yes, a brilliant more, translation. More recently, really great stuff. And Hackett is dedicated to bring, bringing uh, quality, uh, translations to the public at a very affordable price. And they're one of these great companies that is, uh, as in a phrase we like to use, they are keeping the flame alive. That's correct. They yep. support high quality literature at a very affordable price. So, listener, if you want to do two things, you want to support this podcast, we would be very grateful for that kind of support. And if you want to add to your own collection of good things to read, go to hackettpublishing.com, check out their selection. Drop a couple of titles into your grocery basket, and when you get to the checkout, what do they need to do, Jeff? Then they will type in this coupon code. Uh, that would be AN2023. And what will they get for their efforts? They will get two wonderful things. They will get 20% off their entire order and free shipping. Free shipping. That's huge. Check it out. All right, Jeff, as we get back into the meat of this episode, mm-hmm. where are we headed next? Well, um, I, I, I'm guessing that maybe our listeners are still wondering, okay, that's that's great, you, uh, Jeff, your weirdo story about the bunny man. But again, what does this have? What is this doing on a classical podcast? I have to say that I was wondering that too. Okay, well, let's clear up. I was a little up. bit of a doubting Dave. All right. So, um, so in the second half, I want to kind of draw some parallels between uh, these, these, these expressions of liminality in the bunny man story um, and with uh, similar kinds of things that we see in, in the classical world. And so one of the main things is that you find, uh, not just in the ancient classical world, but um, in cultures all around the world, like I, would, I would argue this is a universal thing, is that um, cultures um, have anxiety about unbounded places. Mm-hmm. Right? And I would think that, I, I would argue that at some level, the reason that these stories still pop up around bridges and crossroads and graveyards and such is that we still have these anxieties. And it, there's something kind of deeply human about that. And so we tell these stories that stick, that are kind of magnetically drawn to these places. So we continue to do the same, these very same things, but in, I think, in a way that is much less self-aware than it happened uh, for the ancients. Mm. And so um, to, I get to use classical ancient culture as our as as our, as a as a touch point um, both the greeks and the romans uh, had anxieties about unbounded places gates thresholds you know uh, entrances to to uh, to houses to cities to crossroads 
Um, and they marked these places in very distinctive ways and in ways that I think that strike a lot of you know modern viewers as very odd and strange and weird. Okay. Right? And so um, you would uh, the Greeks would and Romans would often place at a crossroads at thresholds what we would call a herm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a statue, kind of a form of the god Hermes, but it would be on the front of it would be phallic imagery. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we did an episode about the um, Alcibiades and the Sicilian expedition. Yes, right. right. I don't remember the name of that episode. Um, Some crazy but somewhat clever title that you came up with. Was it my? Wait, you're gonna you're gonna put this no, on me, right? No, <laughs> okay, no. yeah, right. But um, yeah, of course, one of the things that he was. Um, he was accused of was um, drunkenly going around and, and defacing all of them. defacing all of the herms, right? right? And um, this was something that the city took very, very seriously. And they were mile markers too, right? Right. Um, but uh, they were also seen as things that are kind of spiritually protecting these areas, and, right? And um, and these things that you know, at a glance to um, um, the modern eye, they seem sexual. They seem obscene, right? And because um, they have human genitalia, right, right. Um, uh, but because of that, I think we often misunderstand their their purpose. Okay. And so, and this is true. This wasn't just the Greeks. You find this um, all over the world. In my religions class that I teach, it's striking is is how many cultures place phallic imagery at these points of transition. Now, if I may interrupt, yeah. Do Do you have a category in your thinking about this? Um, the category of superstition. Um. What are you getting at? I'm not, I'm not quite following. Where are you? Is, is there a category for superstition? The notion of the commonality of all of this is born out of an ignorance about the way the universe actually works. Um, that, in fact, death is not a liminal space. You know, the, the, the body laying there is no longer alive. Yeah. Uh, if there is a soul, as I believe, then the soul is somewhere else. Right. But the the unease about it is because of an ignorance about the truth of some of these things. Yeah. Not, not stating that we could on this side of, you know, the next life have full knowledge of all of these things. Right. But we could still have true knowledge. Yes. And so what connects a lot of these is what would have been called by many superstition. Yeah. No, no, I, I, totally, I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, at the same time, I would also say that um, I think humans around the world still enact and recognize or, or do these things um, in spite of um, perhaps claiming true knowledge or, or oh, we know this is all ridiculous. Well, that all may be well and true, but we humans still do it. I see. Right? So I think I would say yes. So you're making more of a realistic claim. Yeah. I, and I'm not, I'm not saying that there's any kind of you know historical truth in these liminal creatures right or or the the truth in that unbounded spirits gather at unbounded places right um i said yes there's definitely a superstitious aspect to this that i would say this is this is not real it's right? inaccurate is that, but at the same time i am completely fascinated by the 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 fact that these are universal notions mm-hmm. right and they and do, are, do you know why you're fascinated by it um because I don't fully understand it. Okay. Right. And so it's 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 something that you know that our you know our post enlightenment scientific um, you know knowledge has not eradicated. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or even a um, a Western Judeo Christian uh, differing view on notions of death and the soul and the afterlife have eradicated. Mm-hmm. And so this still goes on. And um, so so that's the point where. Right. Yes. You you probably sense there was a theological angle behind this. But yeah. That's the point where 
you know, I agree with you. So someone who is a, a professing Christian could recognize this as superstition. Yes. And yet um, find themselves in some ways uh, unable to avoid falling into these kinds of ideas. Is that kind of your point? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think there is kind of, a, this is a way that that uh, humans for millennia have understood the world. Right. Right. And I think often unquestioningly. Right. right? Uh, particularly from a modern point of view. So uh, I, I like when I talk about this in my class, I press it upon my students is that like when the, the Greeks put a, a herm at a crossroads, mm-hmm. they knew exactly what they were doing. This, mm-hmm. this idea that the obscenity of the image the Greeks believed would ward off. Apotropaic. Apotropaic, right? Um, whereas when we have uh, uh, adolescent kids coming up with stories that glue themselves to crossroads, thresholds, and bridges, we don't know why that is. Mm-hmm. I think the ancient Greeks and Romans would know exactly why that I is. I see. And so that's, I think we've kind of, uh, I find it fascinating kind of as an, an example of kind of lost knowledge, mm-hmm. right? And so, and by uncovering some of these archetypal roots, we might not fully explain why this is happening, but we can certainly make a better case for kind of um, where these these ideas are coming from. Okay. All right? You're going to enumerate some examples now? Yeah. And so if you, um, in the classical world, uh, not only the Herm at the crossroads, um, if you were to go to uh, Pompeii and Ostia, you know, two, right. two of the, um, you know, the great archaeological um, uh, excavations in the classical world, you'll find phallic imagery, in um, the mosaics at the threshold of a house, right? Um, and it's again, it's there to protect the the, the in between place. Um, the, You're going to mention Janus, Janus, uh, the 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 two headed Roman god, mm-hmm. um, you get placed at the gates of the of the forum and the gates of the city. Um, the the heads looking in both ways. Mm-hmm. He is a liminal deity. He is a he is the god of the doorway. He is the liminal deity, isn't he? Yeah, right, right. You know, from his name comes. You know, January and janitor and, right. and the word for for door and for entrance and right. and the like. And so this is um, um, this is stuff that you know if you were, if you went back in antiquity, this wasn't just these superstitions that the rubes and the rednecks um, bumpkins believed, but this you find this in in the in the downtown forum of Rome. Mm-hmm. This was a widely kind of accepted accepted way of kind of understanding kind of how the world works physically and spiritually. Okay. So moving into yep. um, Americana. Yeah. You've got the famous guitarist here. Right. Robert N- Johnson. Not Scott Van Zandt, but Robert Johnson. Right. Who was a real person. Oh, yes. You yes. can listen to his recordings. Exactly. Right. Um, but um, he's most famous for this legend that as a young man, he went down to the crossroads at midnight and it's there that he sold his soul to the devil. In exchange for... For playing the blues like nobody else could. Right. right? And then he dies under kind of violent, mysterious circumstances at age 27. And that sets the template for... Have you heard of, you know, about the, t- the 27 Club? Of, yes. Of, uh, so like Janis, Dying young. Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morris, and Amy Winehouse, they all die at 27. Right. And this is sometimes kind of related, well, that's the curse of Robert Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, what about places like Devil's Gulch, Devil's Tower... Yeah, if you go, if, Devil's you, Peak. if you look at um, at uh, kind of forlorn places in the American landscape. In it, the West it, in particular. It, yeah, when you kind of get out and where it, you get the wide open spaces and there's a lot more room between towns, it's really quite striking of, of how the word devil is applied to you know, Devil's Gulch, Devil's Tower, Devil's River. Mm-hmm. Um, devil's Kleenex. Right, because if it's in the liminal place, uh, uh, that's the, where you're going to meet the... the the spiritual danger. Right. There's got to be something fishy going on there. Right. And so even like with Robert Johnson, the crossroads, um, 
people have connected that um, it's a Southern American legend, but it has its roots in um, West African folklore, mm-hmm. where at the crossroads you don't meet the devil, but you meet this the spirit called Legba. And if you can if you can trick Legba, then he'll give you some kind of gift in exchange for something like uh, like your um, he will have your life hmm. uh, when, when it's over. And so then that that becomes kind of loosely kind of Christianized um, into Legba becomes the devil at mm-hmm. the crossroads. Yeah. Well, a liminal spot from classical antiquity where this danger occurs as well, of course, is the crossroads between Corinth and Thebes for Oedipus. For Oedipus, right. That's where um, the, kind of the first um, part of the horrible oracle comes through. It's where he kills his father. That's correct. So right. we've talked about the ventriloquist. What about the goat man at Old Alton Bridge? Right. So these these liminal creatures are all over American uh, urban legends. So it's not just the boatman, uh, the boatman, the bunny man. Um, there's a, a number of goat men okay. out there. And so um, uh, on a road trip that I did with my family a couple of summers ago, I, I did get to some of these places. I, we, we didn't have time to go as far east as Clifton, Virginia. Is this where um, famously Beck said, that's a tub of crock? That, no, that was much earlier in our okay. relationship. <laughs> right. Um, but we went to, there is a famous goatman in an unfortunately named part of uh, Louisville called Pope Lick. Okay. And there's the Pope Lick Goatman, which is, um, he will, if you drive under the train trestle bridge at midnight, um, the Goatman will jump off and, and land upon your car and oh, no. yeah, drag you out and drag you down into no. into the nether regions. I don't want that. No. And then at, in Denton, Texas. No, I can understand the, I can understand the Goatman yeah. because that is a classical trope through and through. Sure. But right. the Bunny Man is not. No. I think, but I think the, the Bunny Man is a, is a growth on... On things like the goat man or like the figure of Pan. Okay. Right? And if you think about Pan, you know why is Pan half goat, half man? Well, I mean he's a liminal creature. He dwells in that in the forest. He's he's the the literal panic that comes upon you. Yes. The traditional interpretation is the uh, famous fertility of goats. The, that's why. Oh, that's why he's the goat man. No, it's why goats are associated with so many deities. Oh, the I traditional see. explanation is oh. goats are. Fantastically fertile. They they can reproduce, you know, more than pretty much any other farm gotcha. farm animal. Right, right. So they're a natural selection for they're a natural one to choose for. Let's associate um, supernatural powers gotcha. with that creature. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, but sure, certainly um a figure like Pan is the is sets the template for mm. the Popelic Goat Man or mm-hmm. um there's the goat man at the um the old Denton Bridge in Denton, Texas, old Alton Bridge in Denton, Texas. And here, teenagers will drive their cars up to the edge of the bridge at, mm. at midnight. And what you're supposed to do is you click your brights three times. Really? And then you, you, everybody shuts up. And what you're listening for is the clatter of hooves on the wooden bridge coming towards you across the other side. And, and if you look online, there will, you have these reports. You know, I swear I saw two glowing red eyes. Yeah. And um, if you had a little goat man fatigue, frankly. Really? You've, yeah. had, you've had enough of I've that? I've had enough. <laughs> Right. Um, but yeah, I think you could, you could make connections between those kinds of figures in some of the creatures that we've, we've mentioned, like the Sphinx, like the Chimera, like yep. the Centaur, the Minotaur. I think they all stem from the same kind of place, hmm. right? And it's rare to find a composite animal that is friendly to humans, yes. right? Um, we've talked about centaurs, right? With the exception of Chiron. Right. You know, centaurs They're are all dangerous. Dangerous and violent. Lecherous. Right. Drunks. I- exactly. Right. So... 
I could go on and on and well, on. Well, I think I'm, we have to we have to you know cross over the threshold here and okay. put this episode to rest. Okay, exactly. I wanted to say one last one last thing, All right. if I may. And this is actually the, the thing that I find most. Fascinating. This is the last time you can use the word liminal. Okay. For the next thirty episodes. All right. I'm kidding. Okay. Now, well, you might have to hold me to that because um, I might need to be um, kind of reined reined in. Right. So, um, but the aspect of this I find. The most fascinating is this this notion of the legend trip. Okay, and that is when these stories stop becoming stories. And it's when usually adolescent kids don't just tell the story or know the story; they go and kind of test the story. And mm. So you go to the location, and like with the black angel, there's some kind of physical ritual that you run around it three times, and so um, there's a physical enactment of the story where um, the legend tripper becomes part of the story. Okay. And that's really fascinating because the, and the obvious question, well, well, why do that? Um, it's often been written off as just kind of being, oh, it's just kids doing kids stuff. Well, um, I mean, most of these examples have been adolescence. Yes. O- older adults don't do that. Right. That's what, not a coincidence, is no, it? No, because adolescence is a liminal time in life. Okay. Right? So it's 13, 14, and 15-year-old kids doing this. They're no longer kids, but they're not adults yet. And so even the liminal time of their own life is kind of reflected in this. And I don't think that's a coincidence okay. at all. And so, um, you know, kind of the, the, the thesis that I've been playing around with is, well, well why exactly is that? And uh, like I said, it's often been dismissed as just, oh, and it's very often boys doing this. You know, girls tend not to do this much, as much as boys. Because they have um, more sense. Is that why? Well, I mean, that's sure that's been, that's been, that's been offered. Hypothesized. Right. Um, but boys, you know, tend to be more um, risk-taking. Mm-hmm. Right? And this this has that element to it. But the thesis that I really like is that is what's really happening is that these are kind of do-it-yourself coming-of-age rituals. And I've read some uh, kind of writing on this that suggests that, you know, as, as Western society kind of becomes more and more secularized, these kind of accepted rituals of adulthood, be they religious or even kind of um, embedded in kind of, you know, community secular rites, as those are really becoming rarer, um, that leaves a vacuum. And so uh, the, one, the reason that, that young boys in particular do these things, they don't realize that what they're doing, but they're kind of creating coming-of-age rituals, um, testing their courage and becoming adults on their own because there aren't recognized signposts in the culture that, that say, you're a man now. They have to do it themselves. They do it themselves. And so, in, so it's in the same way like for, in Jewish culture, a bar or bat mitzvah, where the culture says, you are a, a woman now, you are a man now. Mm-hmm. If that's absent, that doesn't mean the need for that is, is absent. Yeah, I, I I think that's a very attractive thesis. That um, just like we we don't as a culture generally understand why these 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 stories stick to bridges or why there is this anxiety what we call liminal spaces. Nobody thinks about this in the same way. Nobody thinks about why these kids are doing what they're doing. And um, but if you connect it to you know, come up with age rituals around the world and throughout uh, the millennia of history, um, there have always been rituals for young boys and young girls to cross that threshold into adulthood hmm. and i think this just falls into that very same pattern it's just they're the kids are doing it themselves hmm. yeah. well said yeah that seems like a, a good place to end all right so we are up against it that's right all right gotta say thank you to some folks yes we want to thank uh, mishka for putting this together so well our wonderful sound engineer scott van zen and Cantamplin for the music the intro and outro music nothing creepy about that those are 
arpeggios. I don't think no, in those no. blues. That's just that's just, that's just straight up beautiful. That's there's no there's no liminality there, right? No, not that I recognize. Okay, right? very good. Uh, yes, um, Dave, you want to say something about the Moss Method before we get out? of oh, here? Oh, sure. Let's yep. do that. So uh, I've developed a program for learning Greek to take you from neophyte to erudite. Indeed, it's had some success recently, for which I'm grateful. Our uh, Black Friday Monday, Black yes. Friday Cyber Monday sale uh, did quite well. Excellent. We'll probably have a New Year's sale as well. We want the study of Greek to go from psi to shining psi. Nice. Yeah. Nice, nice. And so you go to mossmethod.com, check out some of my many free uh, lessons. Uh, I was just taking count the other day, uh, well over 2,000 now Greek and Latin lessons for free. And uh, if you want if you want to take the, you know, the fee-based course, uh, it's a very good value, mossmethod.com. Check it out. I have one for Latin also, yeah. latinperdm.com using Hans Orberg's famous book, uh, we're working on Unit 2. It's in production, so that's going to be coming out soon as well. Fantastic. Excellent. Hey, if you want a shout-out, if you've got an idea for an episode, you got a question, you have a, a critique, uh, go ahead and write to us. You can write to Dave at Dave at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget that V. Or you can write to Jeff, Jeff at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V in nauseum. Yes. Um, you can also check out our website mm-hmm. and the uh, AdNauseum.com. Check out the Lurch with Merch section. And get yourself a nice Quinocent Docent Ad nauseum t-shirt or hat. Perfect for the holidays. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Speaking of the holidays, yes. I think we're going to do a holiday episode coming up here. Yeah. Next week? Um, or maybe. Okay. I don't know. Kind of next week or maybe delay. All right. Uh, but we'd like to keep it uh, TBD, TB, uh, to be determined Sounds in good. terms of where we're headed next. Excellent. And Dave, I believe you have our gustatory parting shot. Yes, but this one's not humorous. Oh, unfortunately, not. this is all I could find, but I'd like to pick it apart a little bit. And, right. and maybe if we pick it apart, we'll find some humor buried within it. Okay. So this is by a woman named B. Wilson. And uh, we did have a funny quote from her previously. We did? Yes. Okay. B. Wilson from her book, First Bite, How We Learn to Eat. And she says, the problem with lunchboxes is the problem with the way we feed children in general. Parents trust that anything they place in this magical box will be good for the child because it comes with their love. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Can you relate to this? Yes. Uh, you I, can? I am the, the lunch packer. In You're a, the lunchbox in packer. Our, in our household, right. Do your kids have a, a box that's reusable or do they have a little paper baggie? I have one that uses a paper bag and the other two have like one of those, the, the ones that you kind of can kind of put a cool pack in. You it know, zips up maybe? Yeah. It's vinyl or something? It, yeah, exactly. Yes. Did you have an actual lunchbox as a kid? I did. I did too. What was yours? My, my favorite one was the one with all the NFL helmets on the front of it. That's pretty sweet. Yes. I had a Mickey Mouse okay. lunchbox. Not bad. That when you opened it up, there was a tiny little thermos on the inside. I remember that. Which had a cup for soup. (laughs) Yes, right. But one of my friends, we'll call him Brian because that's his name, he had the Dukes of Hazzard lunchbox with the thermos built inside and so forth. Oh, man. I was struggling with the sin of envy. I I bet. When I saw that. (laughs) But this this part about... um, Parents trust that anything they place in this magical box will be good for the child. Yeah. That was not my experience at all. No, not. <laughs> my parents just, we'll put in there whatever we can get ready in time for them to eat. Exactly. Now, sometimes there were some great surprises, like a slice of pie or something really delicious. Yeah. But I don't think they believed there was any magic involved. It was it was very utilitarian. Oh, yes, exactly. The kid's got to eat, put something in the box. Exactly. As the lunch packer of my house, that's, that's how I Is that how it works? It is how it works, right? Yeah. So I never think that there's anything kind of magical. Or, oh, this must be good for them because I put it in the box. <laughs> right. So I, I have... I can't relate, B. I take issue with B here. Yeah. But. 
But, you know, you're taking in the classics and you are... You're keeping them down. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.